pray, God, that we would understand it, Lord, that we would not only understand it, but God, it would change us. It would change me. I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding, give us the ability to discern and apply what we look at in this series. Lord, thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would give me the ability to express it, Lord, that you might be glorified. We give you this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to start a new series. Uh, If you got your Bibles, if you'd open up to the book of Hebrews, to the book of Hebrews, we are going to start a journey today. It's going to take us a while, but one that is going to be incredibly fruitful along the way. This morning, as we begin an an introduction, what we're going to do is is basically just look at a very simple outline, and and I want us to, Lord willing, leave this morning getting a feel for like how this book lays out and how we're going to process it. Today, we're going to start out by looking at three observations about the book. We're going to look at the setting, we're going to look at the message, and we're going to examine the intro this morning. So as we get started, let's start with the setting of the book of Hebrews. And as we look at the setting, we're going to ask questions like this. We're going to say, okay, who is the author? Who is the author writing to? We're going to examine when was the book written and things like that. As we look at the message, we're going to try to begin to see, okay, how do we understand the overall theme of the book of Hebrews. And there's 13 chapters. So how do we see them? How do we overlay them? Because if we get started and we don't even know really where we're headed, it's going to be difficult. And then as the intro comes there at the third point, I pray today that we would already begin to see some of the message of the book already seen in the very first couple of verses. So as we examine the setting, who is the author of the book of Hebrews? And we read in in chapter 1, verse 1, something that's not real familiar to other letters. We read in verse 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's a unique opening to this wonderful letter, this epistle. Because when we read that, it's not the standard... Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints who are at wherever. And that is something that we do not see, and it has baffled the church for 2,000 years as to who is the author. And when we think about the author, we typically have some common suggestions. The one that's usually the most common is the apostle Paul. That's a possibility, though I think him writing it directly is unlikely. Another possibility is a guy by the name of Apollos. Another possibility is Luke. Another one is often mentioned, um, John Mark. Many different possibilities of who could have written this letter, but I think that while it may not have been Paul, Paul had a great influence upon it. And we're going to see some many things here. I I, I found one quote that I found helpful in looking at this. Um, Before I read you the quote, when we look at the early church fathers, Origen believed that whoever wrote it was highly influenced by the Apostle Paul. 
the Greek and the style seems different than Paul. It's possible it could have been Paul. But Paul does some things that are very unique, and usually his introductions or his closings are similar. He doesn't do anything there in Hebrew, so it's unlikely that it's him in that regard. Another way is that he often defends his apostleship and his authority. He doesn't do that within this book. Um, We also see at one point the author seems to point to the apostles and he looks at them and refers to them as a category. And, And that strikes me as if Paul would have included himself in that. So whoever it was, highly influenced by the apostle Paul, I would guess but we don't know for sure. I like this quote by Professor Keener from the contents of the letter of Hebrews. There are a number of things we can say about the author. One is that he was brilliant. He knew the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, backward and forward. He knew how to link text in ways that were very persuasive to traditional Jewish audiences. Probably he was a Hellenistic Jewish author, probably writing to a Hellenistic Jewish audience. When I say Hellenistic Jewish, I mean Greek-speaking and probably in the diaspora, but very committed to their Jewish traditions and very knowledgeable in Scripture. That's an interesting thought. It's just that. It's a thought. It's not the Word of God. It's not authoritative. But an interesting perspective as we jump into this letter. Who wrote this letter? Origen said, we don't know who wrote it, and, and I would agree. We, we can speculate, but we just don't know. But when we get into the recipients of the letter, some other interesting questions begin to emerge. Who is he writing to? It, in, in some ancient manuscripts that are later on, and many look at them as scribal editions, it says, to the Hebrews. And When we see that, is there any evidence that he's writing to a Jewish crowd? And I think there's many, many places where we can point to his evidence of this. Look at the first verse, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now notice that phrase, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It appears here that he's not using this as some type of terminology to refer to all of Christianity, it appears that this is something the fathers, that, that the fathers, that the Jewish fathers, the patriarchs of the Old Testament. And one of the amazing aspects of the book of Hebrews that we're going to also observe is that there are several, many, many, many references to the Old Testament. In fact, one of the assignments I want to give you so that uh, you're not just a bystander as we go through Hebrews is I want you to get engaged with this. I would challenge you, read the book of Hebrews at least once a week. You might be thinking, how in the world can I read the book of Hebrews? It's about 20 to 25 minute read, if that. So 20 minutes, I mean, so if you really wanted to, uh, I think we all spend uh, every bit of 20 minutes a day on social media. And I think uh, we all find uh, Netflix sometimes goes way beyond 20 minutes. So do you realize if we just put 20 minutes a day, we could read the book of Hebrews every day of the week. And I'm telling you what will happen. As you read it, you're going to get more and more familiar with the flow of this amazing letter. One that is incredibly sophisticated, obviously because the Spirit of God inspires it. But as we look at it, 
There are so many references to the Old Testament, 31 mentioned, some say more than that. And I want you to think about some of the themes that really make it appear, not just from the first verse, our fathers by the prophets, Old Testament references, Old Testament subjects, over and over and over. He brings up angels. He brings up the Torah. He brings up Moses. He brings up Joshua. He brings up the promised land. He brings up the priests. He brings up Melchizedek. He brings up Aaron. He brings up the priesthood. He brings up the covenants. He brings up the old versus the new covenant. He brings up the tabernacle. He brings up the temple. And so as you read it, there is a great sense of Leviticus that comes out of this letter. And so many people say, wait a minute, I don't know who he's writing to because it doesn't say I, the author, writing to you, whoever. But one of the things that we can observe, there's at least a strong sense that he's writing to Jews. And why do people think that these are Hellenistic Jews? These Hellenistic Jews were basically Jews that were Greek-speaking. This, this is some very highly sophisticated Greek that is used throughout Hebrews. And many people believe that he's quoting out of the Septuagint. And because of that, a lot of people say, wait a minute, this was a Hellenistic Jewish community. And we go further, and some people say, wait a minute, these weren't just Hellenistic Jews, these were Italian Hellenistic Jews. And you say, where in the world do you get that? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Now, it's possible that they're not residing in Italy as he writes this, but based off of another interesting observation, Clement of Rome wrote a letter, and it was literally the first letter of Clement. He wrote it to Rome, and he lists in that letter one of the very first extra-biblical references to Hebrews. And many say, wait a minute, there's some puzzle pieces here that are interesting. He mentions the Italians. He mentions uh, Clement that we know from history as a faithful brother in the Lord, mentions Hebrews when he writes Rome. Again, do we know for certain? We do not. But it is fascinating. It's possible these were not just Hellenistic Jews. It's possible that there were some Gentiles mixed in. We just don't know we can only observe several different things. But one thing we know about these people is that they were struggling with some immaturity. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. That's an interesting first line, isn't it? For though by now you ought to be teachers. You ought to be further down the road. So there's a suggestion of some immaturity, but we also find something that I, a lot of people miss. You know, when I think about Hebrews, I think about Leviticus. I think about the priesthood. I think about the covenant. I think about Christ in comparisons to how he's greater, but often do not consider the book of Hebrews is written to a group of hurting Christians that are going through great persecution. We read in Hebrews 10, verse 32 through 35, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, 
Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I tell you, that, that's a powerful last verse there. These people not only came alongside those Christians that were in prison, but they literally suffered personally out of their own possessions. Their property was plundered because of their faith in Christ. They were going through great persecution. And if you look at this and consider the possibility that he was writing to a group of Christians in Rome, we then are, we look at a timeline. We're going to look at a date here in a second but it's very possible that some of the early persecutions of the Christian church around 49 AD, all the way going up to the time where Nero's persecutions start, that these Christians are dealing with some great struggles. Hebrews 12 suggests that martyrdom may be in their future. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What a powerful image there and a reality of the suffering of these people. And I want us to think about this because it's easy to imagine persecution. And in many ways, that's what we do as Americans. I mean, we often talk about the horrible persecution of people not saying Merry Christmas to us at department stores, you know, just like the Romans dealt with. But I mean, we, in a lot of ways, we don't understand this, do we? And we know it's not that we strive to understand it either, is it? We don't sit here and say, oh, we long to be persecuted. We're not that way, and, and we seek not to avoid it, but we seek not to look for it. You see, when we read this, we're dealing with Christians who are dealing with the reality of the temptation to protect their spouse, to protect their kids, to protect their property, to protect their money from all of the temptations of the world. I tell you, I find this interesting because I don't know the timing of when it's going to happen, but I think we'd be naive to not recognize the trajectory of our country towards persecution. I think right now, if you look at the state of the culture and the state of the world as we see it, if you did not see that on the horizon, your head would be in the ground. You wouldn't understand. And I find this, as in many people that I talk to, and I've relayed the same sentiment, people have said, wait a minute, do you realize some of the implications of the Equality Act, some of the implications of a world that has gone literally sexually crazed? What are the implications of people that hold to the Bible and maintain a sexual ethic and maintain a view of Christ? What are the implications? I don't know, but I'm comforted by the fact we're going to be looking at a letter where these people were already dealing with it, and the author writes them to comfort them and encourage them and exhort them to endure all. That's comforting words because often we can get ourselves out of perspective by dealing with hypotheticals. 
We can say, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? The one thing we can always say for certain is regardless of what happens, we have a firm anchor that we never need to fear. Well, while all of this is being talked about in a modern context, Hebrews was dealing with the reality. I found this uh, interesting one quote one commentator said, we've noted that the audience of Hebrews had suffered persecution. This persecution was tempting them towards apostasy, but this temptation was not what we might first imagine. It seems that at the time Hebrews was written, Christians could find safety from persecution if they rejected their distinctively Christian beliefs and identified more closely with their local Jewish community. Now, here's what's fascinating. If you study Rome, and you study persecution, what begins to be observable is, is that the Jews many times were persecuted, but there was a great period of time in Rome where Jews were free to worship in the synagogues with no repercussions at all. And Christians now, at this point in time, had moved far enough away from Judaism to be looked at and regarded as another sect, another group. They weren't just an off-branch of Judaism to the Romans. They were looked at as another group completely, and they were being persecuted. And the author writes to people who are tempted to compromise. I tell you, you know, th this hits close to home. I mean, to, to my teenagers in the room, what happens if you are maligned and laughed at and scoffed at and ridiculed and bullied because people know you love Christ? Are you tempted to just clam up a little bit? Are you tempted just to go to school and be undercover with your faith because no one really wants to go through being ostracized. That's a normal human temptation. We face it as adults in friendships with the community. We face it in the workplace. You face it in all kinds of settings. And if you begin to imagine and begin to relate to the times in your life that you've looked for compromise in order to avoid the hit of being a follower of Christ, you then make it really more personal when it comes to this context of the first century and the persecution these Christians were enduring. And the author's writing them saying, look, you got to endure. Look, you got to keep on. He, he writes to them and basically says, look, you joyfully, you endured persecution before. Keep going. Keep, keep, keep fighting. Keep looking to Christ. And over and over and over. So in light of the persecution, in light of all that's going on, there were th at least 30 exhortations that are listed in the book of Hebrews. And so the author is exhorting these people. He's saying, come on, keep going, keep going, keep trusting. And so what he does is, as he's writing, you see that persecution in the background. The next question I think is important in the setting is, is this all Christians here? It's a really good question. I challenge you to really puts your thinking cap and your, what we would call your hermeneutics cap on. And the hermeneutics is basically just interpreting scripture. It's just a word that is really weird. And who is he writing to here? Is it only Christians? One of the, the suggestions, uh, I was reading many different commentators on this. Uh, Dr. John MacArthur suggests that as he writes this, there's really three groups in mind. 
One, there are Christians who are struggling with at least the possibility of flirting with the compromise to Judaism. That's one group. A group that ultimately the only hope of enduring is because of the continuous work of the Spirit and God would take these warnings and God would take these exhortations and would keep them moving along. But there's another possible group that we're going to see at different times in the book of Hebrews, and these are intellectual people that believed intellectually in Jesus but had never made a heart appropriation of Christ. These were people that really would be described by the parable of the soil, the parable of the sower, where the, everything looks good. You know, it looks like there's real stuff happening. But when temptation and persecution and the hardships of life come along, they just don't endure to the end. And and the author here is, is making an appeal at times within the letter to say, come on, get off the fence. Put your faith wholly in Christ. Don't just be intellectually inclined. Don't just say, yeah, I believe the things about Jesus Messiah, but be a true follower of Christ. Be, have real saving faith. But then finally, a group that potentially is described by those that did not care and did not believe, and yet the author makes an appeal to them in their Judaism to see that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and he is the better way, and he is the substance of the shadow in the Old Testament. As we move through the letter, we're going to find different passages where it's going to be extremely important to understand who it is he is referring to at different times. So we see the author, we see some possible ramifications of the recipients, but, but what about the date? The date, I, you know, the date, you may think, what's the big deal here? And, and I understand that possible question. You know, one of the things that, that we need to consider is, is that throughout the letter, he writes a lot about the temple. He, he writes a lot about the sacrifices. He writes a lot about the priesthood. And he writes about these issues in a present tense type style, which suggests that the temple still is in existence. And you say, when was the temple not in existence? Well, 70 AD, Titus destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And it appears that the way he writes that he is dealing with a time where the temple still exists. Another clue is how he refers to Timothy. And notice how he refers to him. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Now, what's important about that? No other place in the New Testament did we find that Timothy is in jail. And, and, all, and we look at the timeline of how people speculate when Timothy died. We see about the temple. Many people guess this is around 65 AD. Could be earlier, but I do think we can pretty much bank on the fact that it's before the destruction of the temple in 70. So we see a couple of uh, spade work type issues. We, we go from the setting, though, and we need to look at the message. What in the world is the book of Hebrews about? A lot of Jewish references, a lot of Jewish scripture, a lot of Leviticus. He assumes they understand it, it appears. 
So when we look at the chapters, 13 chapters, the theme of the book that I really believe we can count on here is Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus. And you may think, well, I don't like that title. That's fine. Here's some other suggestions. The supremacy of Jesus, you could say Jesus is greater. You could say Jesus is better. You could say Jesus is superior. And again, you may be thinking, what is he supreme over? What is he superior to? What is he greater than? What is he better than? And here's the issue. The author of Hebrews is writing to Jews who have come out of Judaism into Christ Jesus. Have you noticed how even today uh, people get so messed up with the understanding of how Christianity is the fulfillment and is the substance of the shadows of the Old Testament. Have you ever been around Christians where it appeared as if they were going back to Judaism in their Christianity? And if we struggle with it, that ramification in 2021, do you think it would have been really possible for within 32, 33, 34 years of the ascension of Christ for these Christians who are now, you know, think about all the, the issues there even at the uh, Jerusalem Council as they were struggling with the Gentiles and the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church with the Jews. And so all of these issues are going on. And so for these dear believers that are tempted to think that they need to step one foot into Judaism and one step over here in Christ and sort of waffle back and forth wherever it's convenient, they need to understand who Jesus is and they need to understand he is greater. They need to understand he is superior. You see, this goes throughout the entire letter. We see in chapters one through two, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the angels. He speaks about the angels. This was special to the Hebrew people. They were the messengers of God. Jesus is the ultimate messenger. But then we see in chapters three and four that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He keeps going, and in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is greater than the priesthood. He fulfills it. He's greater than Aaron. He is the ultimate high priest, prophet, priest, and king. We go on, and we see in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus is greater than the old covenant because he brings a new one in. And the new is far greater. And then we read in chapters 11, 12, and 13, it's as if he spends these Four major comparisons to show how Jesus is supreme. And then he finishes the letter by saying, now let's look at the incredible implications for our day-to-day -day life. There's implications and exhortations to godliness throughout the first 10 chapters, but really in 11 and 12 and 13, it's just constant implications of what it means to be in Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You know, when you start a letter like this, a lot of people don't like the spade work part. This is the spade work. You sort of got to go through the beginning and you got to go through a little bit of the history if we're ever going to understand the setting. So bear with me, hang in there. We're going to be moving and rocking along here and Lord willing, just overwhelmed at the wonder of what we see about Christ. Let's open here though and see the intro this morning. I had great ambitions of covering a lot, but we'd be here till one o'clock and there's no dinner on the grounds prepared for you today. 
So we can't do that. So I'm just going to open up with the first verse in the first part of chapter 2. And I want you to see what he does. Because Jesus is supreme. And so understanding that Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, Jesus is far superior, I want you to think about how the I keep wanting to say Paul. I don't know if it's Paul. I keep saying how the author, how the author now starts this. Again, I want you to think about potentially scared Christians. I want you to think about Christians that are weary. I want you to think about Christians overwhelmed, Christians confused. And right off the bat, what does he do? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Don't you love this opening few verses? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, you may be thinking today as you're with us, you may be thinking, you know, why is this so significant to study Hebrews? Because all we're doing is studying the belief period of 60 to 70 AD of what those people thought at that specific point in time in history. But I want you to see further back here. You see, this is not just relevant to 60 to 70 AD. It's relevant to us today. It's relevant to all of history because long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke. God has spoken. He starts right off the bat, and he wants them to see that we have direction. We have understanding. We can parse through these differences because God is not silent. I want you to think for a minute. If God is silent, then what do we do? If God is silent, we simply come up with our best attempts and seeking to appease him. We know from Romans that all humanity created in the image of God, and if we talked about the Latin, the imago Dei, they have this inherent sense that they are not the product of muck in the ocean or product of dirt. Why? Because they're created in the image of God and they know that there is something greater and they look at the creation and regardless of what they've been taught or regardless of what they've heard, they see it through the eyes and through common grace and through revelation of creation. They go, wait a minute, there has to be something else. Isn't it fascinating? that all of these cultures and all of these religions, they've never discovered a, a people group that did not have some form of deity? And why is that? Because the exact truth of what Paul presents in Romans 1 is fleshed out in the realm of real human experience. But here it says that God has spoken long ago at many times and in many ways. You think about long ago at many times and in many ways. I love this because you start going through just some passages in Genesis and you just take several chapters. Genesis 8, 
God spoke directly to Noah. Genesis 12, God spoke directly to Abraham. Genesis 26, Genesis 28, Jacob dreamed. That's where we see Jacob's ladder. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with God. Exodus chapter 3, God spoke to Moses in a burning bush. I mean, on and on and on. And whether it's visions, whether it's dreams, whether it's dictation, whether it's God appearing, the angel of the Lord, God spoke in many multiple ways. And one of the ways that helps us understand the Old and the New Testament is when we read a passage like Luke chapter 24, in verse 27, and this is after the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus is walking down the road to Emmaus, and he's walking with those two guys that didn't understand what had happened. Their eyes were kept from seeing. And what did he say? In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I tell you, there's a lot of places that we might want to be if I said, hey, where would you like to be in any point in the Bible you know, you could come up with a lot of good ones, but I'll tell you, this would be a good one. If I could pick one place that I might have been in the entirety of the Bible, it might have been on the road to Emmaus to hear the Lord Jesus explain himself in the Old Testament. Because what we learn there is there were all these promises and Christ was the fulfillment. There were all these shadows, but Christ was the substance. Everything came together in him. And when we look at this first observation about Jesus in verse 2 and verse 3, Jesus is the final word of God. He is the communication. He is the exegete of the Father. He's the one who reveals to us the things that we long to know. And here we see it. I love this because Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezra, throughout the centuries in so many ways. And, and earlier you, you heard Stan read 2 Peter 1. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God has spoken. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I love this because he's revealing to these people and reminding them that they have an anchor and they can have an unwavering hope because God has brought himself in the midst of the equation and he has revealed himself and he has spoken and ultimately spoken to us through his son. It says in Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is God's final word. You know, I was thinking about this, and the last days, he says, has spoken. This was a messianic phrase. The Jews understood it. It, it. it pointed to the time of Messiah. And, and Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the Messiah. When we say Jesus Christ, Christ is the idea of anointed one or Messiah. Jesus Messiah. And he is the word of God. I love what Tony Marita says at this point. As the writer of Hebrews will meticulously demonstrate in the coming chapters, the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament, the climax of God's redemption is found only in Jesus Christ. I was talking to someone 
uh, in the church about this. And, and, and you know, th- there's just common questions that everybody asks. Every human, there's four common questions. You know, there's questions like uh, origin, where did we come from? There's questions of meaning, why are we here? Questions of morality, what is right and wrong? Questions of destiny, where are we headed? Do you realize this morning everyone in this room is going to answer those questions a certain way? Think about it. Everyone in this room, you may not be a follower of Christ. You may be a Christian. Whatever you are, everyone here has answers to those questions. Where did we come from? You see, we live in a culture and a world that that teaches its students that we came from naturalism, that we have no creator, that we come from dirt, we come from muck in the ocean, we evolve. Now, I want to ask you a question. You take that, and then you ask the question, why are we here? If you train up a culture to believe that they are not the design of a creator, but that they are nothing but an accident, why are they here? You tell me. There is no meaning. And then meaning becomes what? The meaning you want to make. The meaning you want to pursue. And then morality. What is right and what is wrong? You determine it. Destiny. Where are we headed? And the naturalist would say we are headed nowhere. We're headed to death. We're headed to non-existence. And so what do we do? We live it up. It's carpe diem. For tomorrow we die. Live for the moment. I tell you, one of the reasons it's so significant to understand those questions is that it helps us not to be so amazed at the direction of the current culture. Because what we're looking at in the culture is nothing more than implications of worldview. If we believe there is no God, if we believe there is no morality, if we believe that meaning is in and of ourselves, what do we do? We do whatever we want to do. And anyone that would suggest otherwise is nothing more than a hater of humanity. But what do we learn here? We learn that because God has spoken in the past through the prophets and because God has spoken in these last days through his son, then and only then do we find the answers of the ultimate human quest. And we discover in these opening verses the meaning of true life. We discover the meaning of our origins. We discover that we are not the product of naturalism, that we are the product of the special creation of God. We are not accidents. We are created in the image of God. I pray that every kid in here today understands something. You are not an accident. You are created as a special creation of God. You are created in his image with infinite dignity. And you're created and you have longings in your heart. You have desires in your life because you are made and created in the image of God. And if you ever lose sight of that, your life will spiral into a level of meaningless existence because you've lost sight of who you were meant to be. God's created you. Meaning morality, right and wrong. And when we look at this amazing opening, 
God has spoken, and because he has spoken in the silence. Do you remember at the end of the Old Testament? At the end of the Old Testament, we have what we call the intertestamental period. A time of period is 400 years. It's the period of time that we really, we, we come up with, uh, you know, Judas Maccabeus, if you understand any Jewish history, and, and, and Hanukkah, and all the, the traditions that go along with that, that 400-year period of time. But in that period of time, it was silent. There wasn't any speaking. The prophets, the last prophet, Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, there was nothing. For 400 and something years, the voice of God was silent. But then we opened the pages of the New Testament, and in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And Christ reveals himself as the substance, as the fulfillment of the shadow, as the fulfillment of the promise. And he declares to us who he is in the implications for our life. As we go through the book of Hebrews, because God has spoken, he reveals himself as supreme overall. I want to just give you a highlight of where we're going next week. This is, this is tremendous. We're going to read and understand more about Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is the heir of all things. Jesus created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus made purification for sins. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the author of Hebrews is writing to these disillusioned, confused Christians, and he wants them to see if you could just understand who he is, it changes everything. I wonder this morning where you are in your life. I wonder this morning, you know, we all have that, we could all answer that really different. And sometimes that takes a lot of time to think about. And sometimes we can't even figure that out. But I wonder where you're at. I wonder, like, if I say to you, Jesus is supreme. I wonder if, if the only thing that really affects in your life is your profession of faith. Is the reality that Jesus is supreme over all, does it have impact on your day-to-day? -day? Does it have impact with your siblings? Does it have impact with your goals? Does it have impact with your fears? Does it have impact with your longings? Because here's what we got to see is that the author of Hebrews was so compelled that if the Christians he was writing to could just see the glory of Christ, if they could just see the supremacy of Jesus, it literally changes everything. It even takes people in a great place of fear. It takes people that are in a, the, the just the depths of persecution, and it gives them hope. As we walk through this letter, my prayer is, is that as we study the meaning of Hebrews, that by the grace of God, it would lead us to wholehearted devotion in Christ. That it would give us a courage, that it would give us a boldness in a culture that is really changing right in front of our eyes. 
that it would give us meaning, that it would give us a foundation. It would give us a boldness no matter what we face. So I pray as we leave today that we would uh, say, Lord, would you help me not to be just informed about you, but Lord, would you help me to know you? And Lord, would you help me to see that when I understand who you really are, and when I come to grips with the fact that you truly are better and you truly are greater, it changes everything. As we close, would you pray that with me today? Some of you may be like some of those that came across the letter to the Hebrews or those we think he's writing to, where you're just really on the fence. If somebody followed you around, they'd have no clue you were a Christian other than the fact that you might say you're a Christian or you might attend a service occasionally. I pray that whether you are a current Christian, whether you are just a professing Christian, or whether you're just totally not, just confused about everything, I pray that no matter what the group, that as a result of walking through this letter, we would be changed by the supremacy and the power of Christ. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, God, as we go through Hebrews, that we would be humbled. Lord, that we would grow in our understanding of who you are and that that understanding would, would develop and turn into a, a knowledge of experience of following you and, and loving you and trusting you. And Lord, as we learn about the people who have modeled faith in the past, as we learn about those who were changed by your grace, I pray, Lord, that we would see that Christ is sufficient, that he truly is supreme over all. Lord, help us to understand this, this, this amazing letter and at times difficult letter. I pray you'd give us insight and give us wisdom. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to connect the dots as to how it needs to apply to our day-to-day, -day, just to the mundane, to the, the ordinary, to the, the regular parts of our life. I pray, Lord, that we would see that this has far-reaching implications in everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.